0: This interview is part of a podcast series organized by Dr. Kaya Shilda, Associate Professor of International Relations at the EU's Party School of Global Studies and Jean Monnet Chair in European Security and Defense. The podcast series focuses on Europe and the world, and our episode particularly explores EU enlargement with the hope of shedding some light on the complex dynamics at work today. We interviewed Professor James Care Lindsay of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Professor Kerr lindsays expertise in enlargement with a regional focus on Southeast Europe helps us evaluate some of the academic discourse on the subject.
1: My name is James Kerr lindsay uh, I'm a visiting professor over at University of Kent and a research associate at London School of Economics where... I worked for many years on a specialist research unit on Southeast Europe. So my background is on conflict, peace and security in Southeast Europe. So I've worked extensively on Greece, Turkey and Cyprus, uh, but also on EU enlargement in the region, especially in the Western Balkans.
2: Thank you so much, Professor James. It's a great honor to have you here today. So my first question is about the motivations behind the EU enlargement policy. As we all know, the EU enlargement policy has been there for decades and it's a very complicated process. And many scholars give different explanations for the motivations of the policy. Some say it's uh, you know, politically motivated and others say it's more about additional economic interest resulting from expanded market. And also other people say, oh, it's actually about the security reasons. And others say it's about European identity. So given all these hypotheses, what do you think might be some of the most important motivations behind this policy.
1: I think um, when we think of enlargement, in in, in actual fact, I mean, there, there are a number of competing explanations, but I think in, in actual fact, in order to understand it, uh, most simply is to understand it from a more ideological point of view, uh, that uh, especially when we're talking about the Western Balkans, uh, a, a comment was made a number of years ago, which I, I always thought was a, a, a very good explanation of it. Um, which is it's it's about certainly in the Western Balkans it's about completion. Uh, so if you look at the map of Europe, you can see that especially in Southeast Europe that there's this gap. Uh, these these countries which are completely surrounded by EU members. So you know we had Croatia, which was the most recent country to join, uh, but then you've got the six Western Balkan countries which aren't in it. And as somebody said, it's almost like a black hole. That exists uh, in that part of Europe. So I think there's there's a very strong sense that uh, this is about um, finishing off a process. Um, of course, when you start to expand out, and and what we have seen very recently is uh, you know a substantial increase in the number of new candidate countries. Uh, not least of all, of course, Ukraine, which was a huge step forward for for the European Union, uh, but also Moldova. Uh, And we now have seen that Georgia has been offered a perspective as well for EU membership. I think that um, in those sort of senses, there's probably a more political dimension uh, that's at play, um, which is very, very important. And I think this is obviously sending out a very important message at, at the moment, especially with Russia. Uh, that's saying that, um, you know, these these are countries which we're trying to bring in. I think in order to understand it, 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 it is about a, a process that many in Europe see as a natural evolution of bringing the countries together, um, the European countries together more closely politically, economically, culturally, socially um and, and strategically. So I, I think there are a lot of complex reasons, but as as I say, I think certainly for the Western Balkans in particular, it's it's a it's a process of completion, if you like.
3: Thank you so much, Professor. And I would like to continue with the second question, which is um about uh, Turkey's EU membership process, so although currently Turkey's EU membership process isn't a stalemate due to both political and economic crises it undergoes currently, there are other obstacles that hinder this process, which is Cyprus. Uh, so after the United Nations' Annan plan for Cyprus was rejected by 7-5% of Greek Cypriot's votes, Turkey's EU accession negotiations became obsolete due to subsequent deadlocks, such as the implementation of additional protocol and Turkey's refusal to uh, open its harbors and airports to Greek Cypriot administration. So in this respect, uh, what are some of the areas that might promote resolution in the islands?
1: Okay, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's incredibly interesting to um, look at Turkey's relationship with the European Union. And this is something that, you know, I've been very, very interested in now for 30 years. Uh, so I've worked extensively on the Cyprus problem. And there was a time when you're you're absolutely right, that um, Cyprus was front and centre of any discussion about Turkish membership with the European Union. And Uh, everyone would say that uh, it was the biggest impediment uh, in many ways to Turkish membership. I think in many ways we've moved beyond that, uh, especially in the past decade or so. So uh, you're right, in 2004, there was a referendum on the island. Uh, The Greek Cypriots rejected unification, whereas the Turkish Cypriots accepted. But it's worth remembering that if you like, as a reward for that, uh, that Turkey was then offered a chance for starting membership talks. And I think that what we've actually seen, uh, especially over the past, well, it, it probably the past decade now, um, I mean, since the Gessie Park demonstrations, uh, and I think there's been a lot of concern about the direction uh, that pri- um, Prime Minister and then President Erdogan has taken into the country. And so I think um, although Cyprus is certainly on the agenda still, uh, it's much, much less significant uh, now as an impediment uh, to Turkish membership of the European Union. I I mean, I think if I remember rightly, it was 2016 that the last chapter was opened. Uh, So although this remains an open process, in reality, uh, certainly, no EU official feels that um, Turkish membership is, is is a realistic prospect these days, um, and and I think most of the concern now is is not about Cyprus. It, it's about the internal situation in Turkey. That there's very very serious concerns about the state of democracy in the country. Uh, There's concerns about human rights issues in the country, all these sort of things that we talked about in the 1990s. And then tremendous progress was made, if we're to be honest, in the first years of the AKP government, you know, from November 2002. Uh, So when you had Prime Minister Gul, and then even the first years of of Prime Minister Erdogan. Um, So I think think it's important to stress that I, I think the factors now affecting Turkey go beyond Cyprus. In terms of Cyprus itself, um yes I mean you know we we are in a very very difficult situation I uh, I've been very closely involved in the Cyprus talks uh you know I you know I was part of the British team in in Crans Montana uh in 2017 when the UN led talks that that took place there and um you know recall very very clearly Uh, what a sense uh, of disappointment there was in amongst the international community, not least of all the UN Secretary General who was leading the talks um, about the failure to reach an agreement. And of course, we had the failure in 2004. Um, So I I think, unfortunately, it doesn't look terribly positive at the moment. Uh, There doesn't seem to be a political will on the part of any of the main protagonists uh, to reach a settlement at the moment. I, I have to say that um, I, I think there's a lot of unhappiness at the increasingly hardline position uh, that the Turkish leadership has been taken and the support that Turkey's been given um, to that. And talk of a two-state settlement is, is really not helpful. Uh, the international community has decided that the formula has got to be a bi bicommunal bi-communal federation, and it's very clear that that is the preferred will of the United States, of Britain, and remembering Britain as a guarantor, so it has a slightly different role in in, in this process, and, of course, the European Union. So um, I I think, unfortunately, we're we're in a very difficult situation. And so you're right. I mean, Cyprus is a necessary but not sufficient condition uh, for Turkey to join the European Union. Uh, And so we would need to see some sort of settlement there. But, you know, even if Cyprus were tackled, Um, and solve tomorrow. I think there would be a lot of goodwill towards Turkey, but there would still be some very, very serious outstanding issues that would need to be addressed.
2: Aside from Turkey, as we all know, there is another conundrum to the current matter of enlargement, which is the Western Balkans. And as you just mentioned, uh, the enlargement for the Western Balkans is more about the completion of the project. However, what we see is that ever since the Thessaloniki agenda in 2003, this significantly slowed down the process. So, what do you think might be the main reasons for those slowdown?
1: Great question. And I, I think you know, I'd, I'd love to give you just a really simple answer and and say, but of, of course, it's it's it, as with anything to do with the Western Balkans, it, it, it's rather complicated. Um, I think that you're absolutely right. Two thousand and three was very much a high water mark um, for discussing Western Balkan membership of the European Union. Uh, you know, Greece was holding the presidency of the European Union at the time and Greece had set enlargement as its key uh, initiative. It was really the way it was going to make its mark. And I think the summit was very, very important in that regard. Uh, Since then, I mean, of course, you know, we we have seen the opening of membership talks with Montenegro, which effectively now has finished um, opening up all, all the chapters. There's still questions of closing and 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 this is very important to stress that uh, in the EU process, uh, it's a very very long process uh, joining the European Union, uh, and that uh, you know there there's uh, over thirty chapters which deal with specific particular types of issues, and and this ranges from things like scientific cooperation through to uh, health and safety conditions conditions in slaughterhouses uh, how you run your budget uh, it it's it's a very very difficult process joining the european union and you have these chapters as part of what's called the acquis communautaire which is the eu's body of laws and um you know it it it's the eu is very rigorous in how it goes about uh, managing this process because of course you know any country could say oh yes we passed the necessary legislation And you know, let us join, but of course, it means nothing if you then find these countries in the European Union and they're not implementing it. So, for example, in the case of Montenegro, this is a very big concern that you know, yes, you might have passed the legislation, but are you actually making sure that it's been carried out uh, to the standard that's needed? And I I think there's a a great level of concern after, especially, Bulgaria and Romania joined in 2007, uh, which. I think most people and even those of us who are uh, ardent supporters of enlargement, such as myself, uh, would argue that it was premature, that this was a political decision that was made to take in Bulgaria and Romania. um, And that uh, in in actual fact, the EU has decided it can't let that happen again. Uh, So it's now a very rigorous process, which means that it's a much slower process. Um, I think, on top of that, that the, the other problem that we're seeing is that we've got certain outstanding issues in the Western Balkans. Uh, so until a few years ago, there were three. There was the Macedonia name issue, so it was in dispute with neighbouring Greece uh, over the name. That's been solved, but only to be replaced now by a rather bizarre issue uh, to do with cultural identity in Bulgaria. Um, I'd love to be able to tell you what the dispute is about and what the Bulgarians are unhappy about, but I don't actually think the Bulgarians themselves know. Uh, They're just angry at the North Macedonians, something to do with culture and some heroes of the Bulgarian revolution who were born in Macedonia and both countries claim that. I mean, it's a very, very silly thing, but it's holding up uh, talks on North Macedonia and Albania. And on top of that, you've got two other key issues. So you've got Serbia and, and Kosovo. Uh, so Serbia hasn't recognized Kosovo's independence after Kosovo declared independence in 2008. Uh, and although Serbia has started its talks, you know, the general feeling is it won't be able to join until it has recognized Kosovo. And then you've got the perennial problem of of Bosnia. Um, And, uh, you know, Bosnia is a a fascinating country. It's a country I know well, I've been many times, but it's in deep, deep political malaise, Um, you know, that very, very divided. It had a bitter uh, war in the 1990s, which was uh, brought to an end in 1995 with this constitutional system that really needs a radical overhaul and nobody quite knows about how to do it. And until it's overhauled, Um, it's going to be very difficult for it to pursue EU membership. So you've got a whole range of those issues. And then on top of all of that, uh, we have the whole debate about enlargement fatigue within the European Union, that there's this sort of feeling that the EU has expanded now. It's 27 members, um, more lined up. Interestingly, one of the effects of Brexit, although I think Britain was going cool on enlargement even before it left, is that, this removed one of the most important advocates for EU enlargement. Uh, And what we're seeing now is that uh, Europe is much more led by France and Germany. And even though I think Germany is keen to see enlargement into the Western Balkans, I think France has always been much, much more skeptical about the EU enlargement agenda. Uh, partly because it always felt that EU enlargement, and to be fair, it was right, was something that was driven by Britain, because uh, Britain always felt the more members you have in the European Union, uh, the less likely it is that you're going to be able to deepen the integration amongst those members. Um, And so now France is in the driving seat. I think that we are seeing... Much more of that French skepticism uh, that France would like to slow down the procedure. It would like to see a much closer European Union before taking on more members. The danger, of course, is that that opens up all sorts of problems. in the Western Balkans, because it is this process of enlargement that in many ways has been driving reconciliation and reform in the region. So, um, yeah, again, as I say, I'd love to have given you a really straightforward, quick answer, but it, it, it's, it's obviously a very, very complicated process.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's so much to consider and all of the points that you addressed. And one of the things that people have been recently talking about that might move things forward in terms of enlargement, specifically in the um, Western Balkans, is the Open Balkans Initiative, which is sometimes referred to as the mini Schengen zone. So this aims to create an open economic and political zone in the Western Balkans, and some say it might be a stepping stone in the EU enlargement process uh, for the nations involved. Uh, Could you shed some light on the proposed benefits or potential drawbacks of the Open Balkans Initiative?
1: So, yes, I mean, this is this is a really, really fascinating initiative, and it has very, very strongly divided opinion. Uh, I happen to be on the side that thinks this is a, a, an excellent initiative. It's something that deserves to be supported. Uh, there are those who are rather against it, um, precisely because it's it's been led mainly uh, by Serbia, North Macedonia and Albania. And so there's a sense that this is exclusive, and it's it's leaving out Kosovo and Bosnia. Um, now I can I can see why some people would be unhappy about it, but I, I think you know I've always believed that um, the countries of the Western Balkans ideally will be joining the European Union and will be working that direction. But in the meantime, uh, every effort should be made to encourage them to work with one another. Uh, And to develop those ties and set the example. And, you know, again, for as long as I've been working on the Western Balkans, as I say, this has been deeply, deeply divisive, because there are many people who say, no, they should be pursuing EU membership, uh, that any effort to try and get them to work together is actually really aimed Um, At keeping them out of the European Union. So the argument goes that if you, you know, if you open up Schengen, if you open up a single market, then this becomes an alternative to the EU. And this is the way that the EU keeps them out. And I've just never seen any logic to that. Uh, I think, as I say, we do have problems at the moment with with the attitudes of France and some other countries towards EU enlargement. But that's going to exist either way. So in the meantime, anything that's going to get these countries working more closely together, opening up trade, opening up their economic ties with each other, ideally bringing in And making this a fully inclusive process so that all the six countries of the Western Balkans are involved uh, would obviously be better. But given the differences between Albania and Serbia over Kosovo, for example, the fact that you have the Serbian president and the Albanian prime minister working closely with one another on this. Uh, I I think is something that to to be applauded. And, uh, you know, I think the United States and the European Union support this. Uh, There is talk of an alternative track, which is sort of going in the same direction, um, you know, which would be delightfully Balkan, because it's just, you know, why, why, you know, do you have one process when you can have two, three, four, five, six different processes? You know, we use this pejorative term Balkanization for a good reason. Um, you know, to to explain these sorts of situations. But I, I think essentially, as I say, my, my view would be anything that gets these countries working together, especially given their difficult past, um, should be encouraged and applauded.
3: Next question is about, again, going back to dom- democratic backsliding. So um, there has been a lot of Uh, criticism against the EU enlargement policy in recent years, and many of the critics refer to democratic backsliding in some Eastern European countries that have been integrated into the EU through the previous enlargements. And they argue that the democratic backsliding in those countries has proven the enlargement policy to be a failure. So uh, to what extent has enlargement policy have been responsible for the democratic backsliding trend?
1: Yeah, fantastic question because this is something you're absolutely right has become a, a major issue of discussion within the European Union and, and in many ways is driving a lot of the skepticism towards further enlargement um you know and i i remember that uh, a few years ago i was uh in Copenhagen for a conference that was been organized by the Danish government uh, to mark um if i remember rightly it was 25 years of the Copenhagen criteria now the Copenhagen Copenhagen criteria, uh, basically are the criteria that says that any country that wants to join the European Union needs to be an open market and also needs to be a free and fair democratic system. Uh, And um, one of the key points that came out very strongly in this conference is that while we paid all sorts of attention to making sure that countries were democratic before they joined the European Union, uh, no attention had been given to what do we do to make sure that once a country has joined the European Union, that it remains that way. Uh, there was a very high degree of complacency that once a country joins, well, you know, all's good. You know, it, there is no democratic backsliding. But, of course, we have seen that uh, in a number of very, very important cases. The most obvious ones, of course, are Poland and Hungary. Um Poland, it's gone a little bit quieter because Poland now is much more pro-European and trying to rally European support uh, over Ukraine and is very worried about about Russia. Uh, But there are still some very serious problems in Poland. But Hungary is a huge, huge problem for the European Union. Uh, Viktor Orban, the the Hungarian prime minister, uh, has basically been behaving atrociously, uh, you know, and and he quite openly lords his idea that he supports the notion of illiberal democracy. Uh, You know, so we we talk about liberal democracy where we have tolerance, we respect the minority rights, uh, you know, open societies. Orban stands against all of that. So the point that, you know, for example, uh, you know, major universities, international universities uh, have had to pull out of the country, that he's he's uh, completely stripped back the, the media freedom in the country. Um, there's really very serious problems with freedom of speech. And the European Union just doesn't know quite how to deal with it. Um, you know, there's been talk about imposing financial sanctions. Uh, but for a long time, uh, Orban's allies within the main uh, European political party, the European People's Party, which is the centre-right party, which Orban's Fidesz was a member of, um, were very, very reluctant to work against one of their own. They have now changed their position. But the reality is... Um, the, you know, yes, the Lisbon Treaty uh, introduced a way that a country can lead the European Union again, as Britain has shown, um, but there's been no steps to actually say, right, OK, a country which, frankly, completely flouts the rules of the European Union, you know, you can maybe impose some financial, but you can't throw a country out. And I think this is a very, very serious question now that a lot of people are asking themselves about. The trouble is introducing those rules in a way that can make them work is is exceptionally difficult. There is a lot that you can do, um, but it requires unanimity except for the country that's been acted against. In the case of Hungary, uh, it's had quite a close relationship with Poland, which has also been a bit of a bad boy in this whole process, as I say, a little bit less at the moment. And the Poles haven't wanted to go against the Hungarians, and the Hungarians haven't wanted to go against the Poles, so... You know, there's not a lot that we can do in terms of the most serious sanctions uh, to impose on Hungary. So, um, you're, you're absolutely right. This this question of democratic backsliding and and this is having a knock-on effect in terms of future enlargement because you know the EU members are looking at themselves and sort of saying, look, we've taken in these these really problematic cases. Do we want to face another half dozen of these of these cases in the future? Um, the EU might not be able to survive that degree of friction. Um, but changing the rules for the new countries is is exceptionally difficult as well. So it, it it is a bit of a mess and one that we just didn't foresee. I mean, this is all tied up with the fact of we felt that EU enlargement would mean that countries would behave themselves. That these were now liberal democracies and all was good. And, you know, it's proven that that isn't necessarily the case.
0: Yes, the face of enlargement has certainly changed a lot with the trend of democratic backsliding. And some say now that enlargement is no longer a game of broader European politics, but it's rather become a race against rising populism and illiberal sentiments. And what do you think of populism as like an enemy of enlargement? And is it compatible? And, and how would we go about addressing it?
1: Yes, I mean, it. it... It is something that EU members obviously have to to take into account, and and in many ways, um, you know, I blame Brexit on this tide of populism and tied in with the with the enlargement debate, because uh, what came out very very strongly, for example, in 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 the Brexit referendum debate in in Britain was that uh, immigration was a, a key aspect of it. Uh, and the fact that Turkey was going to join, and if Turkey joins the European Union, then what we see is that, you know, you you then have uh, what would be the largest country in the European Union if Turkey joined, it would be bigger than Germany. Uh, And this was sold to the British people as look, there is going to be a huge wave of Turkish migration into into Britain. Uh, They're all going to come to the UK and it's going to be a disaster. And, you know, it all sorts of lies were told about it uh, at the time. And it it was it was really, really appalling, Um, you know, to the point that even a government minister was going on TV and repeating these lies when she should have known better. Uh, about it, um, and I think that this is this has been something that, as I say, we have seen elsewhere in in the European Union. Um, but of course, it, it's a bit of a mixed picture. So, for example, um, you know, countries like Poland and Austria, in particular, would be very anti-Turkish uh, membership of the European Union. But Poland seems to be much more positively disposed towards the idea of Ukrainian membership. Uh, so I, I think, you know, it, it, it becomes quite complicated as to how this plays out and, and, and different countries, you know, it's always been the case that different countries have their pet projects. So for Greece, it was always Cyprus joining. Uh, Germany was very keen to see Poland join in 2004. Um, you know, so we would, we would see this, but uh, you're right. The populist agenda is something, and the anti-immigration agenda is something that, that can come into play with, with, with this.
2: Yeah, it just reminds me of one more question about the Western Balkans. So as you said, there's enlargement fatigue in the EU toward the region. And on the other hand, there's also some reform fatigue, as we can see in many Western Balkan countries, such as Serbia. And the trend of democratic backsliding can also be detected in some of those countries. At the same time, we see many international actors, such as Russia and China, have been increasing their influence in the region. And many people are worried about the future of the Western Balkans' accession to the European Union. So I'm wondering, if you were to give the European Commission some recommendations regarding the matter, what would that be?
1: Oh, gosh. um, (laughs) You you raise so many interesting points there, because, of of course, The geopolitical element is something that a lot of people think about. Um, Well, I think maybe it's changed a little bit since the start of the war in Ukraine. And I I have been worried about the direction that Serbia has been taking. Um, But in the past, I mean, there was a lot more emphasis on Turkey, uh, on Serbia's relationship with Russia than I think was really merited. Uh, I think the reality was Serbia wasn't that close uh, to Moscow, uh, deeply ingrained. Uh, I think that uh, it relied on Moscow's uh, Security Council vote uh, to stop Kosovo uh, and, and to a degree China as well. Um, and it, it's actually interesting you mention about China because, uh, you know, the the, the former uh, EU enlargement commissioner, Johannes Hahn, actually made a very interesting comment a few years ago where he said, look, you know, when we think about the geopolitics of the Western Balkans, uh, we have a tendency to overestimate Russia and underestimate China, uh, that China in many ways was the actor that many in senior European circles said that, you know, should be paying more attention to. Um you know i it's gone a little bit quieter I have to say on 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 that agenda uh and that's that discussion in in the past year or two um it it's still there but i i I don't think it's quite as salient as it was a few years ago, but if it were to come down to offering advice i mean i I think the absolutely most critical element to consider is that the EU has actually been a tremendous force for stabilization in the Western Balkans. And that stabilization only works if the European Union can give a credible perspective for eventual membership to these countries, that it says, look, we want you to join. We know it's a long process. We know that it's a difficult and arduous process, but it's one that is best for you and it's best for us to make sure uh, that you meet the conditions of membership. Um, we will, but we are absolutely committed to having you. Uh, that potentially, I mean, there has been talk about looking at sort of steps that can be taken um, short of full membership to start to integrate the countries. If you like, a, you know, if at the moment you you you're outside of the European Union, you might get EU money, but then you suddenly one day you join, and there's been talk of maybe looking at ways of trying to integrate. Um, countries in a more variable way so that you join elements of the European Union before you become a full member and I I think maybe it is time to start considering that because I think there is a real sense in many of the countries of the Western Balkans that the EU isn't serious anymore um that they're being told they've got to do X Y and Z and as they're trying to do it then you know it seems that EU membership is getting further and further away and we are starting to see polling data which is showing a very Worrying decline in support for EU membership. So, for example, in in Serbia, that's becoming a very a, a very important issue. And you know, I I know Serbia very well. Uh, I've got very close ties to Serbia, and Serbia in many ways is critical to the the entire EU enlargement process in the Western Balkans. It's 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 caused. You know, it's a difficult actor for all sorts of historical reasons and contemporary reasons. But it's absolutely vital that we keep Serbia engaged and. I think, you know, when I see these sort of polling figures that show growing anti-EU sentiment in Serbia, that's very, very worrying indeed. Uh, And I think a lot of this is driven by the fact that there is a sense of despair, despondency uh, in in many Western Balkan countries. They feel that no matter what they do now, the EU just isn't going to take them in. So why bother? Um, And this is an open door for other geopolitical actors, uh, especially Russia. Although, you know, I think Russia's probably got a lot of other things on its plate right now, but Balkans can still cause problems. You know, if Moscow can find a, a little bit of bandwidth, as they say, in policy circles to, to cause problems in the Western Balkans, it can still do a lot of damage. So uh, I think it's it, the needs to bear in mind that the Balkans is important and it really does need to emphasise and and really work on persuading these countries Uh, that it it may be a slow process, but it is a process which the EU is genuinely committed to uh, and wants to see them in. Thank
0: you for listening while we explored some questions surrounding European enlargement with two guest experts. European enlargement is an ongoing process, but we hope this episode has helped you gain a better understanding of the topic and a little insight into challenges facing the European Union today. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed conducting it. Have a nice day.